Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Okay, we're back again with uh, another roundtable discussion about our atonement series that we're covering here at Journey Church. My name is Sarah. I'm here with Pastor Tyler, and we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about um, the typology that we looked at this past Sunday, which was uh, March 20th, when we looked at the sacrifice of Isaac. And then we'll look ahead to our next um, focus passage, which is the Passover. So first, Tyler, can we do a quick recap and talk about um, what was the um, Old Testament passage we looked at? What, what was the gist of the story and how does that relate to the atonement? Yeah, so Pastor Jim was in Genesis 22, and he was talking about what is generally referred to as the sacrifice of Isaac. So in terms of the bigger story, this is uh, God calling Abram, Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And Abraham's story actually begins in Genesis 11, uh, around verse 27. So you have, you have in, in the first week of the series, we looked at... Uh, the curse coming into the world, the, the sin entering the world, and the need to be covered in Genesis 3. So we're fast-forwarding some chapters, and in Genesis 11, you get the introduction of Abraham. He is called out of the land of his forefathers, out of the land which he grew up in, and he's uh, called to follow God in faith and obedience. And he does that with some start and stops, struggling with sin at different points and failing to believe God at different points. But then what we have here in Genesis 22 is we're actually coming towards the end of Abraham's story. He'll pop up a couple of times after Genesis 22, but he's no longer going to be the main character of Genesis after this chapter. And this chapter begins much like the chapter that introduced him with him being called to go. So if in Genesis 11, he's called to go and leave the land of his fathers. In Genesis 22, he's called to go and sacrifice his son. And so Abraham does so obediently. He goes. He goes to the place that God shows him, which is also very similar to what's taking place in Genesis 11. God is leading him in Genesis 11 to a new land. Here, God is leading him to the land where he'll, he's supposed to make this sacrifice. I think it's actually, um, I'm just looking at it. Oh, I, think it's, 12? I think it's 12 verse 1. Now, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred uh, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So yeah. what you're saying is mm-hmm. that that go, it, it, we should be re- thinking about that go in Genesis 12 when we hear God say, take your son, it, this is 22, yeah. take your son, your only son, and go to the land of Moriah. So it's the same, similar thing. Right. I mean, it might even be something where the repetition of that word is supposed to trigger in Abraham his memory of the first time God called him. So he goes, he he goes to the the land of Moriah, goes to Mount Moriah, and he finds, finds this mountain that God leads him to. He goes up the mountain. He lays the wood of the sacrifice on Isaac's back. Isaac carries the wood up the mountain uh, and... We have to remember at this point that Isaac is not just Abram's son, but he's the promised son. As Pastor Jim pointed out, Abraham has two sons. He has the son Ishmael as well. But but God has uh, told Abraham, well, Ishmael's kind of the son you got when you tried to fulfill the promise I gave you. Isaac is the son I brought forth when I fulfilled the promise I gave you. Is it possible to think there about the... The, that language of this this is your son and then here's essentially the son of the promise mm-hmm. um, uh, maybe even a last uh, the first Adam and the last Adam is there a connection there or is it hmm. sort of a different there might be I'd have to think about that a bit more so the the concept of Ishmael so Ishmael is uh, I mean it might there might be a way in which it's connected to one of the archetypes of Adam in, say, Noah. So when Noah is born, Noah's father says, uh, here's the one whom will free us from the curse, essentially. Here's the one who will give us rest. And considering just a few chapters before, when sin entered the world, he was cursed. The, the world was cursed, and when man was cursed, it was said, you will, you, by the sweat of your brow, you will, 
you will work the land. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost as if Noah's father then just a few chapters later is saying, oh, this one will be the, the one who brings us out of the curse. And in some way, Noah himself is also typological of Christ, uh, building an ark to save humanity. So saving humanity on a vessel of wood, much like Christ hanging on the cross. Uh, there's a bunch of interesting things that Augustine does with that. There's a door in the ark that uh, Augustine draws a parallel to the, the hole made in uh, Christ's side when he's pierced with the spear. But so you, you might find something there. The, the key, though, with Ishmael is that God gives Abram and Sarah a promise. And instead of trusting the Lord to satisfy and fulfill that promise, they try and get it of their own accord through the sinful means of uh, uh, essentially prostituting Sarah's handmaid, Hagar, which is not the promise either. The promise was not just that the, it would be Abram's son, but that it would also come from Sarah. Right. And so that's right. part of the promise, and they're, they're violating that. And so God's mm -hmm. promise all is, is his promise entirely. Yes. And not just um, certain parts of it, and will supply our other parts of it, mm -hmm. which echoes uh, or, or points to Jesus saying, I am the way, the narrow, mm -hmm. the yes. narrow gate, the narrow way, the narrow path, that. Yeah, and it's the and so then you have Isaac as the promised son. Here's the one I have created my way, brought about miraculously, contrary to human wisdom, contrary to, to what you thought was gonna happen. I've made this happen and now I'm asking you to sacrifice him. And so that's that's what's going on for Abram. That's who Isaac is. Abraham gets to the top of the mountain, prepared to sacrifice his son. He's got the knife in his hand, and then the text says that the angel of the Lord stops him, says not to harm the boy, and in the boy's place, a ram who is caught in a bush uh, nearby is sacrificed instead. Okay, so we have a couple questions there. First, okay. who is the angel of the Lord? Okay, uh, so this is something which a lot of Bible scholars will disagree on. There's two basic camps. One... Uh, reads the angel of the Lord at face value, which is to say the angel of the Lord is some type of um, angelic being who's a mouthpiece for God. So God wants to say something. Uh, scripture doesn't exist yet. The Holy Spirit isn't inspiring people yet. So he sends the angel of the Lord to say that thing. So there's a couple of times in the Old Testament where the angel of the Lord shows up and says something to somebody in order to get God's message across. So you see that in the book of Joshua a number of times. Uh, you're going to see it again in Genesis when Abram uh, encounters the three men and two of them go and destroy Sodom. It's likely that it's the angel of the Lord there. So this character shows up again and again as God's mouthpiece. That's the face value interpretation. Another interpretation, which is the one I'm friendly to, would say that the angel of the Lord is not just a generic angelic figure, but is actually many of the things that the angel of the Lord claims are things that only God himself can say. And so it's not enough that the angel is the mouthpiece, but he actually must in some way be God. And so would would connect then or equate the angel of the Lord with Jesus or the, the son of God pre-incarnation. So uh, an example of that would be that there's a couple of times where it seems, and I'm thinking particularly in the book of Joshua at this point, it seems that the angel of the Lord receives worship, which it's one thing if the angel were to speak for God, but you can't you can't receive worship. And aren't there sometimes where the angel says, no, 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 don't worship me. Yes. I'm just an angel. Yes, that happened. There's a number of times where that happens where, yeah, somebody encounters an angel and they start to worship because this is a glorious heavenly yeah. being. And the angel's like, ah, no, we're, if you keep this up, we're all going to die right. because that's not supposed to happen. Right. So that would seem to set the angel of the Lord apart. And then you also have the, the concept that there's a couple of angels that are named, and it strikes me as odd that an angel of such importance would not have a particular name, unless it's because we would come to know that angel by another name later, which is that angel is actually the second person of the Trinity who will then become incarnate in Jesus. So, uh, okay, so this is a kind of technical question. Okay. Would, you, would you refer... Taking that second view, so the first view is um, these are mouthpieces of God, mm -hmm. sort of angelic versions of prophets. Right. And then the second version is um, this is uh, 
more than that. Mm-hmm. Is it most proper to call this pre-incarnate son, as in the second member of the Trinity, or pre-incarnate Christ? Or, or mm-hmm. is it, it, can you have a pre-incarnate Christ? Uh, so the most odd way theologically to do it would be to refer to the angel as Jesus, which I was trying to be careful not to do because uh-huh. because Jesus is particularly God incarnate. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, that And that means God in flesh, God in human form. Uh, you could say pre-incarnate Christ in the sense that Christ is, uh, it means anointed king. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the concept. And so you have from eternity past, essentially God the Father has determined, and I think this is one of the meanings of Ephesians 1, God in the past determined to save his people through the incarnation, uh, sinless life, uh, substitutionary death, and victorious resurrection of Jesus. So as he's thinking about that, then you have Jesus the Christ, and the title Christ then you could apply to this pre-incarnate person. Uh, you could also say the pre-incarnate Son of God. That would probably be the most accurate way to refer to him, uh, or the simply the second person of the Trinity. You don't need to import incarnation on that. You could say this is the second person of the Trinity. Uh, so yeah, those would those would all be viable. The one where you start to get weird is if you you say this is Jesus. Well, the, Jesus is because Jesus was also a man, an actual man. Yes, yeah. an actual man who was born and. There's something happening there where if we confuse those, we confuse something that's going on in redemption history. So if we get our terminology right, Mm -hmm. why does that matter then in Genesis 22? Well, one of the really fascinating things in Genesis 22 is uh, that Isaac is not sacrificed. So Abram, Abraham, he has two names. He gets renamed, so I keep on messing that up. Abraham is told to go sacrifice his son. He is about to go through with it. He's gone through this entire thing, and and Pastor Jim did an excellent job on Sunday laying out how the conjunction and in the text is doing this heightening of tension Mm -hmm. where it's kind of each time you hear it, it ratchets the tension just a little bit because it's, and even it's slowing down. It's, and Abraham did this, and then there's quite a bit of time that the first and is traveling to the land of Moriah, which would have taken a while, Mm -hmm. and then it's, and this, and this, and the ands keep on getting closer together to where it's, and he reached for the knife, and he lifted it above his son, and you have this this feeling that uh, those ands would have happened very rapidly. So it's intended to rat- ratchet up the tension, yet the tension is resolved when Isaac isn't actually sacrificed. So then you go, well, what happened here? How, how come the sacrifice didn't need to go through. And it's one thing just to kind of point at the ram and go, well, you know, the, the ram gets sacrificed in its place, so every, everything's fine. But there's another sense in which, well, maybe one of the reasons that that doesn't happen here is because one of the things that happens regularly in the Old Testament, or regularly is a bit strong, but happens reoccurringly in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. is the relenting of God's wrath against sin at the point at which a worthy mediator intervenes. So you have in the book of Exodus, in Exodus 32, you have the Israelites create a golden calf, and uh, God is God tells Moses, I'm going to destroy the Israelites, look what they've done. Mm-hmm. And Moses intercedes. And so he intercedes, he acts as a mediator, and God relents from his desire to destroy them, which is pretty strange because God is outside of time, God is all-knowing, what just happened? Yeah, what is, how does relent work then? Right. In that? So you could, I think one of the things that's taking place is you have that sort of thing happening here where God said, I want you to sacrifice your son. And it's not that God didn't necessarily intend that sacrifice to go through, but it's that the, the words of a worthy mediator stopped the sacrifice in the same way that Moses, as the worthy mediator for the Israelites, stopped the sacrifice. How, how would they stop it? Well, essentially, you redirect... Well, this is where it gets hard, because God's outside of time. Right. So one of the things we have to remember is, in Scripture, we have 
God's communication to us. But there's a very important doctrine that we don't talk enough about, and that's divine accommodation, which is that the scriptures to us uh, are God's perfect, infallible, inerrant, inspired word, but they are what John Calvin called baby talk. They're given to us in such a way that we can understand them because we don't, we as finite people can't actually understand how things are for God, who is infinite and all-knowing. And even just things like invisible. Yes. And so that could even be um, that God has hands mm-hmm. or he has eyes yes. or he has ears and can listen. Yeah, so, so God, God, God is accommodating to us in his communication of us. So he's making his communication simpler. And in some ways, then, he anthropomorphizes himself in order for us to understand it. So what is happening when God relents? I think this is a place where we have to go, I'm not sure because of divine accommodation, I know that he does relent, but I don't know what that looks like when I think about God existing outside of time and space, outside of the, the dimensions which I am even capable of comprehending. Uh, earlier, uh, an example of that might be earlier in the staff meeting, uh, we were talking about expressive individualism, and I mentioned this, the concept um, from Charles Taylor of a social imaginary and the idea that what we can do, what we are capable of doing, is limited to that which we are capable of imagining. And our imagination is grounded in our context. So our imaginations are much bigger than they used to be because now our context is affected by the Internet, which I can you know, look at things from all over the world, which expands my imagination. I can understand how somebody in China makes a particular dish a particular dinner versus somebody in japan versus korea versus europe versus here and so you can see how all of those things then because they mediate certain things i i am able to increase my imagination therefore do more things well my social imaginary is still grounded in the context of being human and so there's aspects of god that i just can't understand because they land outside of what i am capable of imagining So all of that to say, that's where divine accommodation comes in. I'm not capable of imagining what's happening there. So God says, well, what happened in this particular instance is kind of like this. (laughs) So God is thinking, God is trying to accommodate himself to us so that we can understand as much as we're capable of what's taking place here. And God, outside of time, tells Abraham to go sacrifice his son God being outside of time knows that that's not what's going to happen, but what it does is it triggers the uh, intervention or the mediation of somebody worthy according to God's schema for how that works at that time. So Moses is not a perfect person, but he's a worthy mediator because he's the chosen mediator for Israel at that time. Here, I think one of the things that's happening is you have the worthy mediator of the angel of the Lord. Now, if the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ, there's this really fascinating thing that's happening where the pre-incarnate Christ is coming, stopping the sacrifice of the promised son Isaac because he, when he is incarnated, will be the true sacrifice. And I think this is tied to this very strange thing that a lot of people miss in the text, um, but the Jewish people considered both Moses and Abraham to be prophets. So they weren't just patriarchs. They weren't just, you know, religious leaders. They were actually prophets who spoke for God and essentially spoke truly when they speak. So when something, when they say something, it's supposed to be like prophetic utterance in mm-hmm. a sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's supposed to be fully true. But we're told in this passage not that God would provide a ram, but that he would provide a lamb. Uh, which is a different kind of animal. And there's a bunch of things that take place in this story, which Jim that, pointed to. Just really quick, yeah, that's yeah. what Abraham says, verse 8. God yeah. will provide for himself the lamb. The word there is lamb yeah. for a burnt offering. That's what you're saying. Right. right. So so God is supposed to provide a lamb, but he doesn't. He, there's, a, there's a ram caught in a bush in the back uh, when they actually go to make the sacrifice. So it's this odd thing of like, well, was Abraham Abraham just kind of shooting from the hip and just making it up? To, or is that close enough? Or is it close enough? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of things in the book of Genesis, and particularly in Genesis 22, where linguistically 
they're put together in such a way in which it's very clear that the the words are chosen precisely and you can even think about this in terms of what's happening right so the broader context of the book of genesis is the authorial context meaning what is the author doing and what's the author's intent because you have the the cultural context of abraham of his day so there's a context to genesis 22 but there's also a context in which genesis 22 is being written right think about if uh if i were to write a uh, historical fiction about world war ii world war ii has a historical context but so do i as a human being i have a historical context that's different from that that would be the authorial context the the context of the author well the context of the author of genesis 22 is the israelites wandering in the wilderness and so moses in that context didn't need to say that abraham said lamb like if 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 Moses knows that the animal being provided is a ram, right. why why is it that Abram says it's a lamb, and why is that important when there's so many other details that don't get put into Genesis 22 that were historical things? Like what did the knife feel like? What did the angel of the Lord say anything else? Where on the mountain was the ram caught? It just says he was caught in a thicket. That they you know it doesn't give like a precise location. It doesn't even finish the story. Like they don't come back down the mountain and you encounter the the um, servants who Abram left at the base of the mountain. So there's all these details left out. Why is this an important detail to keep in? And I think it's because this detail too, the missing lamb, is tied to who the angel of the Lord is. You see, throughout the Old Testament, there's going to be this promise of a lamb. You have uh, next week, when, or this Sunday, not next week anymore, this Sunday when I preach, uh, I'll be preaching on the Passover which is a sacrifice of a lamb. So you have, a, you have this sacrifice of a lamb in the Passover. In Exodus 29, talking about sacrifice, they are told to sacrifice a lamb two years old, um, uh, offer one in the morning, offer one in the evening. In Isaiah 53, you have the concept that there's going to be a person who's going to suffer for the nation of Israel. Uh, they will not open their mouth while they're suffering, and they will be led like a lamb to the slaughter. Uh, in Isaiah 53:10, uh, you also have uh, it said that the that it'll be the Lord's will to crush this person to make them suffer, and as an offering of sin, which would be a, a burnt offering, like what is supposed to take place here. So you have that image of lamb burnt offering, and then but you have this throughout the Old Testament. This that sacrifices are supposed to be these pure spotless young lambs and yet in this passage you don't have a lamb you have a ram and it seems like that's a weird thread that doesn't get completed until the new testament when in john 1 34 john the baptist walking on a beach in galilee looks up and sees walking towards him a small group of disciples being taught and instructed by jesus of nazareth and john points at jesus of nazareth and says Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. In effect, behold the Lamb of God who can really pay for the sins of the seed of Abraham, the one who can be substituted for Isaac, the one who can be substituted for all who claim to follow the same God as Abraham. The one that Abraham was talking about. The one that Abraham yeah. was talking about. So when was Abraham wrong when he said God would provide a lamb? He was just wrong about when it was going to be provided. Yeah. Yeah, because God is going to provide a lamb. Yeah. It's just not then. Otherwise, you have to have Abraham go, well, I said God was going to provide a lamb, but he didn't, so my son still has to die because that's a ram. It's the wrong kind right. of animal. Right, the wrong animal. Okay, that was a lot. I want to see mm -hmm. if I can sum up it in and kind of recap and then tell me if what I missed. Okay. So we've kind of said why. We're talking about um, God says sacrifice Isaac. But then that sacrifice doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And the question is, why doesn't that sacrifice happen? Well, the, the angel of the Lord intervenes as a mediator. Mm -hmm. um, and we see this elsewhere. We see Moses do it. We see Abraham do it with Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm -hmm. We see it happen several times. And this, as a mediator, the person in between, uh, that mediator is pointing toward the the future sacrifice of Christ. Mm -hmm. Um and so our, but our language is, it looks like God changes his mind or he mm -hmm. relents or he, he doesn't do what he said he was going to do. 
Um, and that's, but that's our, um, uh, we're, we're in time. So that's mm-hmm. what we see. God is out of time. God's, and so to God, he is looking at the sacrifice of his son. He's essentially remembering the future. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He's, uh, uh, and that this angel of the Lord is potentially, mm-hmm. um, the second person of the Trinity saying, re- remember what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do it. Yeah. I am the lamb. Yeah. On Sunday, Jim said, uh, at the conclusion of the sermon, he said, ultimately, one of the aspects of this text is God saying, a son will need to die, but not now and not yours. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is what is pointing towards the mediatorial role of the angel of the Lord. I will become the lamb of God. Mm-hmm. I will become incarnate. I will take this. Therefore, God relents his wrath. Uh, which again, yeah, all, there's all sorts of stuff that it is hard to understand, but that I think is what's going on in this divine accommodation. Um, can I ask? A, I'm going to ask a question about this sacrifice and the specifically that um, that we asked we asked for God asked for Isaac to be sacrificed and then did not do that. Mm-hmm. Sub, uh, provided a ram that points to the lamb, which is his own son, mm-hmm. but his son is still a person. A person is dying, mm-hmm. and and there's blood. And so I wanted to go back to Genesis. Um, uh, Jim talked about this on Sunday, um, the Noahic covenant, which is Genesis 8 and 9. Um, and at the very end of chapter 8, he says um, that, that the burnt offering that Noah gives, um, offers to the Lord, it is a pleasing aroma mm-hmm. to the Lord and and um, uh, and impacts him that way. But then in, going on in chapter 9, he says, um, I'll just read a little bit here. Uh, but you shall not, this is verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. For From every beast, I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of blood. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So I, I just wanted to kind of connect. Can we draw some lines between that discussion of Noah, the, um, the um, uh, instruction by God to sacrifice Isaac, and this, I, this bigger idea in atonement of, of that they're that a sacrifice is required Mm -hmm. and this idea of blood that Mm -hmm. um the bible talks a lot about blood we don't really talk about blood in our culture in our um we we are blood averse so what what are what how should we think about it what is the bible trying to get across with blood Mm -hmm. yeah so uh in genesis 9 in genesis 8 9 you have this really uh powerful message that some people will take uh, verse 6 and they will go oh so that's uh, they politicize isn't the right word but they kind of make it about okay so that legitimizes say like the death penalty okay well we can move on we can understand if you kill somebody uh, the government should be able to kill you back Uh, but the key to take away here is that God made man in his own image and because he made man in his own image because he is so valuable, crimes against humanity ought to be paid with blood. Crimes that essentially extract blood, the, uh, the proper payment is blood in return. And this actually sets up a way in which we can understand sin in general. Why would, why would sin require the life of God's son? Well, because sin isn't just going to be against blood, which is really important because the blood of humanity represents the image of God, but actually sin is going to be also against an infinite and holy God. And so you need a sacrifice that is big enough in order to bridge that gap. Uh, So interestingly enough then, so you have uh, Genesis 9 also gives us one of the reasons to believe that Genesis 22 is a sacrifice for sin because the even the ask of God is technically wrong if it's not a sacrifice for sin. If it's if there's not okay, that's if God is not saying Abraham, you have done something that requires blood to be spilt, it seems really strange for God to ask for blood to be spilt. But God is saying, 
because of your sin, because of, and we don't know what it is. Um, Jim alluded to the fact that Abraham is uh, a sinner that we, you, in the book of Genesis, you encounter a number of times where he fails to, um, he fails to trust God, but more than failing to trust God, the entire story of Hagar could be read as one where it's, uh, it's essentially like almost a form of sexual slavery, that the slave girl of Sarah's is given to Abraham as sort of a mistress. Mm -hmm. She's not asked her opinion about it, you know, so there's kind of this victimization that you could read in there, but the general understanding is Abraham has done something wrong. Well, hasn't Abraham done something wrong because we've all done something wrong? I mean, isn't there right. that, that at the baseline too? The, yeah, and uh, Jim did bring that out on Sunday as well, saying that um, because no sin is mentioned in the text, you can almost read it as a payment for uh, our sin nature. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as that goes, it would be an inadequate payment, which is ultimately when you get to the question of like, well, why did Christ need to die? Mm -hmm. You know, one, one of the questions I had when I first started reading the Old Testament was, you know, if, if goats and sheep and cows and things like that will do for a sacrifice, why kill the Son of God? Right. Well, and the answer to that question is they won't do for a sacrifice. They're a placeholder. So it's actually um, in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, it says, uh, that it, it says that, you know, the law of God is only a shadow of good things that are coming. Um, they're not the realities themselves. And then it goes on to talk about how the sacrificial system and how sacrifices were offered endlessly, year after year, day after day, constantly sacrifices being offered. And the conclusion that the author of Hebrews comes up with, it says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And it's, it's not that it's impossible for it to, to pay for a finite momentary sin. It's that the problem God is trying to solve is ingrained on our hearts. And so something much bigger needs to happen. It can't just be a singular sacrifice, a singular sacrifice of an animal or even the reoccurring sacrifice of an animal. It needs to be something cataclysmic that, that we, we will divide history as um, taking place before and after this event, essentially. And that's actually pretty close to how we do it. We have, you know, B.C., before Christ, and Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. And so the year of our Lord constitutes his birth, but also, like, the reason why we started there is because Christ's sacrifice for us begins in his life of obedience. So Christ oh. lives moment by moment in obedience to God such that we can receive both Christ's holiness and he can take our the sacrifice that we need to bear. And so we're both, that's propitiation, expiation, imputation, all of those things bound up in there, which we talked about in the last one. But that's us getting his life of righteousness, him taking our sin. So... That's the whole sacrifice, what's going on. I just want to say really quick, okay. we're singing, um, I know in our uh, Down and Journey Kids, we're singing, we're working through nothing but the blood of Jesus. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I, I think about that all the time. Um, we the, It's a very familiar line, so we just sing it kind of without even thinking about it. But what, what we're really saying there mm -hmm. is nothing but the blood of Jesus. What we're saying is no amount of goats and sheep yeah. can do it, right? Yeah. N the blood of animals cannot pay for our sins. Mm -hmm. Only the blood of Jesus can right. do this thing. Okay, keep right. going. So, uh, going to the blood then. Uh, blood in particular, because that was your, we yeah. don't think about blood yes. very much. Uh, yeah, I think we don't think about blood. You could associate that as well. We don't think about, in a sense, life very much. And we don't think about life very much because we don't think about death very much. Yes. So, for example, one of the, and, and, a lot of people will, will kind of import a moral kind of thing onto this in terms of a, a transition that's taking place in our culture. I don't know that that's necessarily warranted, but consider the fact that like cremation is increasingly popular versus burying. Uh, so in burying your dead, you have a casket, you have a dead body in it, you put the casket in the ground. Uh, cremation is increasingly popular, and one of the things that that does is it separates us from looking at a deceased person from thinking about death. Well, and even even the um, that we have hospice care mm -hmm. that we are not we're not around people mm -hmm. who are it's kind of like oh if we're dying we go over there and right. we do it behind closed doors mm -hmm. and then and they used to lay out the body in the in the parlor mm -hmm. right of the home yeah and death was a part of life yeah it was a part it was just a, a regular 
exposure right. of our own, to our own mortality. Right. And, it, and even with that, you can think of the trend, which is a major ethical moral issue. You can think of the trend towards physician-assisted suicide yeah. is another yes. way to avoid yes. death. It is a way right. to, I'm going to take my own life in order to not have to experience the things that generally go along with losing my life. Yes. And even think about that language. Out of my control. Yes. yes. Normally we, we lose our lives. So it, 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 is, it is no longer in our possession, no longer in our control, like you said, versus I'm going to take my own life. I am the active agent in, yeah. in physician-assisted suicide. So I bring all of that up to say because we don't think about death, we're not really thinking about the totality of life very much. Mm. And part and parcel of death and of life is blood. Now, back in the ancient Near East, in, in Abraham's – well, not necessarily in Abraham's day because the sacrificial system isn't, isn't really codified yet, but in – Moses, who's writing the book of Genesis, in his day, they are, with the tabernacle, preparing for the sacrificial system. And Where, so, just, mm -hmm. I can find that in, um, in Exodus, Leviticus, in Leviticus-ish. Yeah, it'll be primarily right? in, in the book of Leviticus. There will be some about the tabernacle and about blood in Exodus, but it's Leviticus is named for the Levi tribe, uh, so the, the tribe of Levi. Uh, who are then, because of their actions uh, during a time of idolatry in the book of Exodus, because of their actions to defend the honor of God, they are chosen as the priests. Mm. And so that tribe becomes the priest. The book of Levi, uh, Leviticus, sorry, the book of Leviticus is sort of how should priests operate? What should priests do? What, like, how do priests cleanse from sin? What, what should they be concerned about? And it covers things from like, mold and what you do with bodily fluids to the sacrificial system and this very formal way of dealing with sin. And that's what's happening around Moses while he's writing this. Yes. Okay. Yes. And in that, when you read that, if you just take a red pencil and just underline or circle the word blood every time it comes up, you're going to use a lot of that pencil mm -hmm. because they are constantly talking about what you do and don't do with blood. I mean, just think about the, think about sacrificing an animal. They're going to take it like like a lamb or like a goat. They're going to take it and they're going to slit through its carotid artery. And it is just going to spill blood out. And in fact, in the temple, they had to have channel ways to deal with the blood because it had to. there was so much blood, it has to flow somewhere. A drainage system. It, yeah, they have yeah. to have a drainage system. And then there's parts where the priests are supposed to take certain amounts of blood and they're supposed to flick it on things. And this is all, it's all ceremony. But it's all ceremony pointing towards something in particular. It is pointing towards the end that the altar, the curtains, the temple, the priests themselves, they are all a stand-in for something else. And that something else is going to ultimately be the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you can't separate those three things. Uh, in fact, one of the ways in which I would think about the Old Testament is the confusion that the old covenant saints, that the, the people who were reading, who were either taking part in the Old Testament, so like David, Solomon, guys like that, mm -hmm. or people in Jesus' day reading the Old Testament, the problem that they ran into with interpreting Jesus, understanding what he was doing, is primarily a problem of not being able to see dividing lines or seeing very clear dividing lines in certain things. But the, the atonement is the crucifixion of Jesus, but the atonement doesn't make sense without the resurrection because mm -hmm. we the resurrection is the validation that the sacrifice has been accepted. So we would still be insecure in our position before God without the resurrection, even if Jesus had atoned for our sins. But if you also can't separate the atoning crucifixion from the life Jesus lived because otherwise Jesus has died for my sins, but I still need to live now a holy and perfect life and since I'm still a sinner, even if Christ's death continues to cover my future sins, I still end up kind of in a neutral place, uh -huh. which is where you actually get the concept from Catholicism of purgatory. As purgatory is when you've ended up in a neutral place, but you are a believer in God, and so you have to go to this one extra place to have the rest of your sin purged from you. What is that also connected to in Hebrews? He, uh, the author talks about how the priests have to first sacrifice for their own sins before they can sacrifice yep. for the sins of others, but that Jesus is different as, as the perfect man. Mm -hmm. He's the only one actually able to, mm -hmm. to 
pay only the sins of others because he doesn't need to pay for his own. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He has no other. He has no sins he's committed that he needs to die for. So not only does he not need to pay for his own, but then he has a life of righteousness. You can almost think of it like a bank account. Uh He has a he has a life of righteousness that he can then distribute to Mm -hmm. God's people. Mm -hmm. And so in that. I don't end up in some neutral place where my sins have been paid for, and now I've got to I've got to deposit money in the debit account. Right, right. I receive from Christ, and so because I receive from Christ, I can be in God's positive. Well, what we would say, God's grace yeah. in that sense. So, the in the old covenant, though, not being aware of how this was going to take place and having just the shadow. One of the things that you see is just this obsession with blood, where blood has to hit everything because everything is tainted with sin, and it'll only be purified through sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And so it's all pointing towards the altar has to be purified because that's not the real altar. It's just a shadow altar that was built with sinful hands. That's not the real priest. The real priest is coming. He's not here yet. And so, I mean, that's essentially what the book of Hebrews is doing is almost walking through the temple and going, see that thing over there? That's Jesus. See right. that thing over there? That's Jesus. And not only is that Jesus, but Jesus is better yes. than that. That's a shadow, yeah. a picture, of right. a miniature. And Jesus is the better. Right. Um, okay, I have a um, maybe an application question. So we're talking about blood. We're talking about sacrifice. And we're talking about Hebrews, which mm-hmm. is, is super important and helpful to kind of put these the pictures that we're looking at in the Old Testament together with Christ. Um, I think Hebrews makes it very clear why we as Christians don't do animal sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't, the sacrifice was once for all. We sing that on Sunday. Mm -hmm. It's once for all. Um, And, and there, there can be no other sacrifice. Mm -hmm. That's what the the writer of Hebrews says. Um, And yet we are called to read our Bibles and our Bibles are full of sacrifice language. Mm-hmm. So how do we, as Christians, think about the Old Testament when it talks about sacrifice? Like, mm-hmm. how do, what lens do we read it through? And then my second question is, or part of that is, is there, we, um, we live in the modern world, mm-hmm. which means our, uh, we don't have neighborhood temples where people bring their goats. Right. But this still applies to us. Mm-hmm. So how does it apply to us? Yeah, so there were a couple of different questions there. Um, the I don't remember if it was the first one or the second one, but how should we think about sacrifice? Uh, Romans 12 says that we are to live lives of obedience, uh, which are our living sacrifice. So one of the things that Jesus did, one of the aspects of the cataclysmic coming, living dying and resurrecting that jesus did is that now the sacrificial system is playing out in reverse rather than killing something in order to atone for our sins something has died our sins have been atoned for and now we live righteously in response to that so just to say that again uh in the pre pre the atonement Mm -hmm. um our unrighteousness required a death in response. Right, in response. Mm-hmm. But now that death alla- alla- enables our righteousness, allows for, yeah. or, and kind of demands, I guess mm-hmm. you could say demands. It's, uh, and this is one of the places where we don't do a good job of talking about um, the freeness of God's grace, mm-hmm. is uh, God's grace as a free gift still requires something of us. Mm-hmm. But we like to. We, you know, we live in an economy where if you give me something for free, it's now mine and I can treat it however I want. And that would be that. I mean, that would be pretty foreign prior to the modern world where, you know, even being given a gift, it's really important for me to steward it, uh, for me to take care of it, for me to use it rightly. I almost think um, like a 16 year old being given by a car by their parents, like if they treat that car terribly, if, you know, they don't change the oil, they don't do any of the maintenance on it. They're not cautious in the way they drive it or park it, and they're, like, constantly scraping against things. It doesn't really show that they value very much that gift from their parents. Mm -hmm. They're not very cautious with it. And so an actual – one of the ways in which to think about that is even if the car was given freely, nothing is expected in return, the right response to a gift like that 
is the proper treatment of it. In a sense, then, as God has given to us, he has given us the atonement, which cleanses us from our sins. He's given us the resurrection, which we can then look to as a confirmation of our hope in Jesus Christ. And he's given us the Holy Spirit, which fills us, makes us alive such that we can understand his purposes. As we taught through First and Second Peter, we saw what those three things do is that they meet all the requirements for life and godliness. Mm -hmm. So God has provided everything we need to live a godly life, and he's provided it not because we asked. He provided it while, according to Ephesians 2, we were still dead in our sins and our trespasses. So we were dead, he made us alive, and provided all of this stuff for us. Now the proper response to that is one which understands the value of that gift and then treats it in the way that it's supposed to, which is the life of righteousness. We were dead. Now we're alive, but it's not our life. Right. That's Romans, right? It's not mm-hmm. our life. It's Christ's life. Mm-hmm. So we are we are um, given mm-hmm. that, but it, we don't have, um, uh, it's not ours to do with kind of willy-nilly whatever we want with yeah, it. Yeah, and you can even think about the, the concept that sin is a form of death. Uh, so s- sin essentially points towards death. So one of, the, one of the images some preachers will use is when they talk about uh, Christians willfully entering into reoccurring sin, one of the things that they're doing is it's it carries with it the visual image of like getting back in your coffin. Mm. Like you were resurrected from the dead and occasionally you just like to get back in your coffin because you think it's more comfortable in there or something like that. And it's this really kind of gross, weird thought, but it's that's spiritually what's taking place when Christians sin. They have been made alive and yet they go and they dabble in death. Mm. And that's, that's uh, in a sense... I think one of the connections of what I'm trying to communicate is uh, we have been made alive by God. The proper response to that is a life of life, is a life of righteousness, is a life that symbolizes that I have been made alive, is a life that is characterized by what Jesus would say in John 10.10 is that though the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, I have come that you have life and have it to the full. So my life should be characterized by a fullness of what is supposed to be life but when i sin what i'm doing is i'm acting out death and so i'm it's uh it yeah i guess that's that's i could stick more words on that but that's i'm thinking of uh, i think two weeks ago we sang when i survey the wondrous cross and use that line love love so amazing uh so divine demands my heart my Mm -hmm. life my all Mm -hmm. that there's that um that that living into that life and then I, but I did want to um since you brought up Romans 12 I just want to read it because I think it's so interesting to think about that in terms mm-hmm. of sacrifice he says I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship mm-hmm. so that that's our that is our our call to our sacrificial call yeah. is to deny the sacrifices not getting in that coffin, mm-hmm. right, is yeah. to deny the, the the things of sin and death. So then thinking about, okay, what do we, in what is called the new covenant under Christ's blood, do with the text of the old covenant, and how do we understand them? Well, we understand them in two ways. One is that we understand them as pointing forward to Christ, and the second is that we understand them as the analog to what we do now. So they were acts of worship, which then is helpful to remember because there's times when the sacrifices are happening and yet the people of God are apostate in their hearts. They have left God in their hearts, which is a good reminder to us that I am supposed to worship God with all my life, which means whether I eat, like when I'm eating, when I'm drinking, when I'm parenting, when I'm being a husband, when I'm at work, uh, I'm supposed to worship God when I, and gather together with his people. So I come here on Sunday and I, part- I participate in the worship of God with, uh, with Journey Church and the congregation of Journey Church. I can still do that, all that with a dead heart. And if I do it with a dead heart, God doesn't care. Because in the same way the Israelites were doing that, where they were sacrificing goats and bulls and doves and all of these other things, they're constantly sacrificing it. They're doing it out of just dead ritualism. And so one of the things that's good to remember is my sacrifice is supposed to be one that is 
uh, habitual. It is done because God demands it of me. It is done out of obedience. It is done out of, um, you know, sometimes it's done even though I don't want to do it. But all of those things actually are still grounded in the fact that I do it because of who God is and what he's done for me. And so there are times when, you know, it doesn't feel like, like I'm not just not feeling going to church or I'm not feeling singing. But there's a difference between not feeling it and, uh, well, I'll, I'll rephrase that. Uh, though I don't feel it, I can still reflect on the fact that God has been good to me throughout my life, that God loves me, that God has paid for my sins and God has granted me all things. And I can actually change the posture of my heart and enter into worship in a way that's not just dead ritual rather than just going through the motions. That makes me think of um, when when Paul says, rejoice always, mm-hmm. and you go, okay, but really always? Because some things are terrible, mm-hmm. and I should rejoice then. But it, it's not that you actually feel like rejoicing. Mm-hmm. It's that it's the it's um, remembering these bigger circumstances that mm-hmm. and the structures around you that are um, you you have been saved mm-hmm. that you've been brought from death to life that that the God of the universe exists and mm-hmm. cares for you and that all of those things bring a almost an, an objective joy mm-hmm. even if subjectively um, circumstantially emotionally I don't really feel it so mm-hmm. much but our feelings are sometimes are, are um, they they can be channeled yeah could, they can be adjusted yeah you're you're not a I, I think we get this wrong so much in modern life and Jim did a good job of addressing this on Sunday uh, he talked about um, the story of, of Timmy his, uh-huh. his yeah. son and uh, the struggle that it was to feel God's goodness in that yeah. moment yeah. Uh, and it's really powerful really powerful story um, uh, especially if you, if you see them now and you see not only Jim's love for Tim, but you see how Jim delights in Tim. And one of the things that I mean by that is uh, Augustine used the word delight and enjoy. And he said we should only enjoy God, but we can delight in things. When we delight in them, what we're doing is we're, we are appreciating this thing in front of us, loving this thing in front of us, fundamentally as a gift to God. So our delight is ultimately still terminating on so when we delight in something i delight in something he has given me but that delight terminates on god so it doesn't make that object in front of me into an idol into a false god yeah into an end in itself and when you when you see how god has really shaped jim's heart through that and you see him with his son it's it's a really powerful story but it reminds us of the fact that that our emotions because we don't see the bigger picture they can they can kind of run rampant on us and they can mislead us but we are not a slave to our emotions. We can we can rein them back in and go, I understand I'm feeling this emotionally. That is what it is. Whether it's right, whether it's wrong, it just it is a fact of what I'm feeling. What though is God doing? What has God promised me? And how should I channel? How should I direct? How should I feel? in light of this thing because we are whole persons we're we're mind body and soul which is a way of saying that i'm i'm mind i have an intellect i can think of things um i have a will as well i can act on this world and do things that i want to do i'm embodied i have a physical characteristic that i act in but i'm also soul i i am a bunch of emotions that can be sanctified uh, jesus had sanctified emotions i am supposed to have sanctified emotions and so i should think through how how am I feeling? And just because I don't want to do something doesn't mean, well, I'd just be acting in dead ritualism if I actually participated in this. No, my actual lack of feeling a desire for it is an emotion which needs to be addressed, needs to be surrendered to God, needs to be given over to him such that he can sanctify that. And my emotional response will be more holy next time. And I will say that even the experience of Sunday and this this sermon series focusing on the atonement, singing about the atonement, reading all of these scriptures about the atonement, that rehearsal of the gospel story of the, of the actual nitty gritty that our sins are paid, that this transaction um, substitution has happened for us. 
that that rehearsal and reminder that preaching the gospel to ourselves is a way to realign mm-hmm. our emotions. So that that is the process of sanctifying our emotions. We take them and go, oh, let let's take those emotions and then process them through the reality of what God of who God is and what He's done for us. Thinking uh, Lamentations three, where Jeremiah says, "This is the worst thing that ever that's happened," but then I I bring this to mind mm-hmm. that the steadfast love of the Lord never fails. Um, it, the psalmist says all the time, "I'm I'm I'm uh, I'm." horribly depressed mm-hmm. I'm um, the world is against me I have, I have nothing and then I, I bring to mind the things of God and I remember who he is and what he's done and then I say oh my soul hope in God mm-hmm. I will I will wait for him to be faithful again as he has been already for me in the past or Job though yes. he slay me yeah. still I will worship yeah him. yeah yeah that's I mean I can't imagine Job really felt like showing up to uh, Sunday morning service yeah. that day but he said even though this is happening, I have all of these emotions bound up in it. I still know God is worthy of worship. I'm gonna, I'm going to seek to realign my emotions back towards alignment with what God says I'm supposed to feel. And that mm-hmm. is faith. Yeah, Tr- trusting in Abraham. Abraham is the model of faith for us, mm-hmm. right? That's what um, Romans and Hebrews mm-hmm. that Abraham's. Abraham believes God, mm-hmm. even when, uh, like, um, as we went through on Sunday, even when it's it's awful and just gets progressively worse, <laughs> mm-hmm. that Abraham believes God, and that that's um, the model of, of what faith is. Can you give a really brief um, preview of this coming week? Yeah, uh, we are going to be looking at the Passover, which is, uh, it comes at the tail end of I mean, what we think of as the Exodus narrative, because so many of us end the Exodus narrative with the Prince of Egypt, where it's like, here were the 10 plagues, the 10th plague happened, then they all left and everything was fine. Yeah. Nothing happened after that ever again. Uh, but the Passover is both a meal, it is a, it is a tradition, uh, but it is instituted here because what it points to is that God's wrath against sin comes to Egypt, where the Egyptians have enslaved the Israelites. And for Israelites who are willing in faith to trust God to sacrifice a lamb, much like uh, Abraham thinks is going to take place in Genesis 22, to sacrifice a lamb, to paint their uh, doorposts with the blood of that lamb, if they do that, then the angel of God, which brings death, will pass over their house and they will be spared. Uh, And there's a ton to unpack there in terms of where we're going, how we see Jesus in it, how it's an image of the Old Testament. But it's just this fascinating story that is wrapped up in uh, what does God have control over? Because we see him controlling political events. We see him controlling the very heart of Pharaoh, that he hardens Pharaoh's heart, softens Pharaoh's heart, hardens Pharaoh's heart. Uh, We see his just unimaginable power of turning a sea to blood of making frogs and gnats and locusts and all these different insects and animals come out of nowhere of covering the sun uh, for a period of time such that the land is in darkness of fire raining down from heaven on top of things and there's just this immense uh, the immense power of God against the false gods of Egypt are on display but they come to a head and who has control of life and in death. And that is what the Passover recognizes. Mm. That if I trust ultimately in God, and note, this is where I'll probably go with my sermon, ultimately in the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, and if I shelter myself underneath the blood of that Lamb, the angel of death will pass over me, Mm. and I will not taste death on that day. Awesome. Well, um, thanks for listening, and uh, I just want to point out there's a couple of um, resources. You can find our sermon series on our podcast um, feed. You can find it on Spotify or Apple uh, or on our website, journeyefc.org. You can listen to our Atonement playlist that has a, a bunch of, a, ver- a wide variety of songs that all have to do with the Atonement, um, and we'll be posting more resources there as we go through. And then we want to um, invite you and make sure you have on your calendar our Easter Sunday services. We'll have two services, a 6 a.m. sunrise service and a 10 a.m. 
um, time where we, we finish up our atonement by looking at um, the risen, um, the, the, the lamb who was slain and has risen again. So um, God bless you guys, and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.